Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1 Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. So here we are looking at the end of one year, the beginning of another. And if there is one thing that's good about adjusting to putting 2017 on every form you fill out and every check you write, if you still write any checks, is that that number gives you a chance to take a breath and think, how could you be a better version of you in 2017? We're going to help you get there over the next hour-ish. We've got Mark Bittman to help you be a more creative cook and eater. Barbara Oakley is going to help you get better at math and science, even if, like me, you still kind of cringe a little bit when you think of your 10th grade chemistry teacher. And we've got Megan Tan to show you what it's like when all that creativity and hard work pay off and the dream job finally comes through. First up, Mark Bittman, who has spent years asking himself, how can we eat better? How can we cook better? How can we get out of whatever sort of rut we're in? He was a food writer and opinion columnist for The New York Times, and he's the author of books on both cooking and the politics of food. His most recent is How to Bake Everything. Mark, thank you for coming into the studio. It's nice to be here. So this has been widely covered and talked about for years, but we seem to be in a kind of inexorable march towards fewer and fewer meals being actually cooked at home. As somebody who has written about how to cook things and made videos about here's how you cook a great salmon and here's how you do this and a chocolate cake and whatever. Does it make you sad that it, like with all the resources people have, including, you know, reading your books and looking at your videos, um, that's just not the direction we seem to be headed? You know, I'd argue that anecdotally, this is probably just to keep myself from feeling sad. <laughs> but I'd argue that anecdotally people are cooking more now than they were 10 years ago. Um, but I, don't, I, can't, I can't give you any evidence of that. I can just say that that's just how it looks to me. But, you know, we had two generations of people grow up not learning in houses where people didn't cook. And that was the, the victory of those who claimed that the food they were selling was more convenient than home-cooked food, microwave food, microwaved food, TV dinners, takeout food, et cetera, et cetera. I meet a lot of people, and I meet a lot of young people, and a lot of them are cooking or want to cook. Mm. And, you know, oddly, in this era where books don't sell as well as they used to, cookbooks do. Mm. So someone's buying them and hopefully cooking from them. Look, we as a society don't encourage healthy eating and we don't encourage cooking. That is something that can be fixed. Mm -hmm. It can't be fixed without political power. It can't be fixed without public will. It can be fixed on an individual basis. You can do it. I can do it. Anyone who's listening can do it. But not everybody is going to do that. That's not the way the world works. So if you were in charge, what would you do to encourage more home cooking? Um, you know, maybe even uh, encourage people to eat healthier kind of on a broader level. We saw, obviously, um, Mayor Michael Bloomberg in New York try to limit people's soda consumption, but then there was a backlash against that. So how do you go about this? You know, my pie-in-the-sky answer is tax soda, tax junk food, tax non-food, um, and use those taxes to subsidize 
fruits and vegetables for people who can't otherwise afford them. And when you say, say non-food, you don't mean like um, tax chairs. You mean like food, <laughs> non-food mean, posing as food. What, what Michael Pollan calls <laughs> edible food-like substances and I call unidentifiable food-like objects, UFOs. So you would subsidize the broccoli with the money I mean, that you I'm got from taxing meat, the you know, I, would, I would subsidize things that don't need labels because they're food. You don't need to label broccoli. It's broccoli. doesn't have <laughs> any it. ingredients. You know? <laughs> so given all of that, we're not making it, you know, we're not making it easy. You know, put aside the person who works two jobs and takes public transportation to work and back. To make it easy for them to eat healthy food, you need a big changes in society at large. But we're not making it easy for people who work one job and drive or don't have that hard a commute and don't have three kids or, you know, have sort of tolerable schedules. We're not making it easy for them to cook or for them to eat well. We're not teaching them how to cook well, how to eat well. You know, they used to teach cooking in school. So, mm -hmm. I mean, when I grew up, they only taught it to girls, but they taught it. And right. if they were teaching it now, they would teach it to both girls and boys. So. So your new book um, is about baking, which in some sense I think of in the more labor-intensive category of cooking. I mean, very fun, and you, and you can't get a cake any other way besides to bake it, but harder than maybe, you know, a stir-fry or something. So um, why baking? Well, you know, you can get a cake other than by baking it. You can go to Stop and Shop and buy <laughs> The that. most yes. junky cake imaginable for six ninety nine sure. or whatever. Well, first of all, I chose to define baking as much broader than cake baking. So there's a lot of probably a quarter of the book is savory. Um, and that includes quiches and includes frittatas. It includes tarts, savory tarts. It includes breads, of course, pizza and so on. So there is all of that. Secondly, I'm a pretty lazy cook myself, so I never ask, and I never ask anyone to cook anything that I wouldn't cook myself. So this stuff is quite simple. And the idea, the idea was to say, look, there's this kind of mythical divide between baking and cooking. People will say things like, I'm sure you've heard this. People will say things like, cooking is an art and baking is a science, and it's completely ridiculous. Both take ingredients and apply heat to those. Usually, apply heat to those ingredients to cause physical transformations that turn them into something that presumably tastes better and is more nutritious than it did before. That's um, true, but I am not scared to drizzle soy sauce over a, a pan. I am scared to put some amount of baking soda unspecified and just, you know, drizzle there's a, it in. There's a little more measuring in bit. First yeah. of all, I could ask you what you're afraid of, but we won't go there. <laughs> But there's, That's you're afraid the after, of doing something. Show part. You're afraid of doing something wrong. But you know, you'll get over that, I suppose. There's there's more measuring in baking, to be sure. But if you can't take a teaspoon and dip it into a box of baking soda and take it out again, you know, you're a sad case. So, I mean, I learned how to cook by reading and executing recipes. Most other people can do that. I'm not a genius. Most other people can do that also. And I've said this so many times that I'm afraid that it's going to come out sounding like a platitude, but cooking is like playing tennis. No one expects to go out on a tennis court and hit the ball really well the first time they go out there. 
people somehow think, oh, I should be able to cook without failure when I go in the kitchen because Bobby Flay does it or whoever they've seen on TV does it. But it's not like that. You need practice. You probably can cook well the first time out with a good recipe if you pay attention and you take your time and you prepare yourself. But with practice, it becomes easy and then it becomes second nature. And the same is true of baking. It doesn't mean, for example, that you're going to say, oh, I'm going to bake a genoise. I'm not going to look up the recipe because I've done it so many times. I don't need to think about it or measure, although there are people who can do that. And you're right. With a stir fry, you come to that stage much, much more quickly. You tend to need recipes longer in baking than you do, or at least in cake baking and cookie baking than you do in stir fry right. making. But, you know, bread baking is something you can do by wrote by memory in no time flat. I mean, like you know, I can rattle off the proportions right now and, and anyone could go bake a bread. So I just wanted to take this section of cooking and say it's not as hard as you might think. I wanted to apply the, forgive my immodesty, Mark Bittman spin to it, which is to say, you know, you can do it and you should try. How much creativity do you feel like you are able to have? Because I think food, for a lot of people, like, they don't want some newfangled lasagna. They want, like, the lasagna that they remember. But, but I also think there is a bit of in each of us that is kind of excited about experimentation. So how creative do you get and how much are you trying to find the chocolate chip cookie that is emblematic of what we all think of when we think chocolate chip cookie? More the latter. Okay. The platonic ideal of lasagna is what I <laughs> the want. The platonic ideal, okay. <laughs> um, I want the lasagna that makes you think this is lasagna. Uh-huh. I don't want the lasagna that says, wow, I never had lasagna like this before. I kind of like it. I mean, that's all right, but that's not me. Hmm. And the same has been true for many, many things. It doesn't mean there's no room for innovation. I think maybe not the best example, but 10 years or so I came up with a technique for roasting chicken that I thought – this is really the bee's knees. This is really great. And it it's, produces a regular roast chicken, but a really good roast chicken through an unusual technique that I hadn't seen anywhere before. What, I'm going to have to know what that technique yeah, is. Sorry, you have to buy the book. What? No. <laughs> um, it ran as a minimalist column, and it is um, you take a cast iron skillet and you crank the heat in the oven and you leave the cast iron skillet in the oven naked for, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes. And then you put the chicken in there thigh side down, and because the thighs come into contact with a very hot surface, they cook much more quickly than the breasts, which are only in contact with Mm. hot air. Interesting. Um, So you sort of solve this age-old problem of the the undercooked thigh and the overcooked breast thing. You have a much better shot at having them all. And other people have done it, and for all I know, I stole it. I mean, I can't remember. But I I imagine, <laughs> I in my mind, I invented it. Okay. You know, maybe it's just a delusion. That's an innovation, but it's an innovation that produces a kind of standard Right. Recipe. You're looking for the perfect chicken, even if that's not something people have ever had before. Well, also, even if it's a method that people haven't used before. But, the, right. you know, the problem is five years let go by, and the editor says, to, and this is one of the reasons that I'm not writing for newspapers anymore, the editor says to you got any new way of roasting a chicken? And the answer is, no, I did really a great thing five years ago. Can I have a few more years off on this one? You know, and that's, you know, the job of journalism is to constantly churn it out and you need to come up with something new. But I think the web, in a way, much like books, has made it so that things 
stay green longer. And I don't need to redo this mm -hmm. chicken recipe. You can mm -hmm. find it. It's in mm -hmm. How to Cook Everything. It's online under Mark Bittman, The Minimalist. It's out there. You can Google it, Mark Bittman's Roast Chicken. But I don't want to do it again. Right. <laughs> I did it. A last question for you, which is this. When you look, you, you've spent so much time sort of thinking about the trends in how we cook, how we eat. Have you ever thought about, boy, 10, 20 years down the line, what all these sort of trends are converging on, how our cooking and eating is going to look different uh, in a couple decades? You know, I would have answered this differently a month ago, but I don't know what we're looking at right now, and, and I'm nervous about it. Um, I think food's a very important thing. I think food can be an agent for change. I even think that cooking can be an agent for change, and I'm happy that I've been talking about that. But I do think that um, it's increasingly food like climate change, and it's not unlike climate change as an issue, are both going to have to be seen as part of a larger struggle and part of bigger issues. And the, the real question is how do humans want to survive? What do we want or do humans want to survive or are humans destined to survive? And what do we want society to look like 20 years from now? Determining what food looks like will be part of that struggle, but I think more important, what food looks like will be determined by how that struggle goes. I mean, I'm I'm scared about this. The threats of industrial agriculture, both in terms of climate change and in terms of other environmental damage and public health, are very, very real. And the turning back point, and as everybody knows, everybody who reads knows that the turning back point of climate change is, is around the corner um, is close enough so that if we're caught up in other struggles for the next few years and we're not making progress on climate change, on changing the way we do agriculture, it may well be too late. So, you know, I hate to end on a pessimistic note, but, but I am scared. And I think, um, you know, I'd rather be candid than all chipper and cheery and, hey, happy holidays kind of thing. Mark Bittman is a former food columnist for The New York Times. His most recent book is How to Bake Everything. He's also author of A Bone to Pick. Mark Bittman, thank you so much. It was great. Thank you, Kara. If you're wondering, like I was, what Mark Bittman would bring to your house if he came over for the holidays, he said he'd go with potato nick which his grandmother used to make. It's like a big, huge, ginormous potato latka, and we've got the recipe for you at our website, innovationhub.org. And I asked him from his most recent cookbook, what's one of your favorite recipes? Here's what he said. This is an accidentally gluten-free recipe, which is chocolate almond cookies, and it's egg whites, ground almonds, cocoa powder, sugar, and they're black. I mean, they're really a great mm. color. And they have that sort of crinkled, ragged macaroon surface and that kind of chewy, meringue, macaroony interior with a crackly kind of crust. They are. I don't like favorites. Usually when people ask me this question, I'm like, oh, come on. It's like a thousand recipes. I don't have two favorites. But that, that cookie is really... Because I didn't know it before I started the book, it's not like, oh, my chocolate chip cookie recipe is great, which right. it is, but this is, like, new.
And now for the story of a culinary experience that you're almost certainly familiar with, with a backstory that you may not know. It's the tale of a Maryland boy, Edmund, who moved to Louisiana in the mid-1800s. He became very wealthy as a banker. And then when the Civil War came, he faced almost total economic collapse. Edmund waited out a chunk of the war in Texas. Then he came back home to Louisiana with basically nothing to his name. His wife's family had been wealthy plantation owners, so they, of course, had very little too. One of the only things they did have was a spot called Avery Island. It was not great for growing most crops, and it had been pretty much decimated by Union soldiers. Plus, just to add to the general discontent in the family, Edmund's in-laws didn't actually like him all that much. So Edmund was given one of the least important jobs on Avery Island. He was assigned to tend the garden. What he discovered in that garden, as it turned out, changed American cuisine. It was a crop he knew nothing about, but he kind of remembered planting a few of them before the war. And it's named after the Mexican state where it comes from, Tabasco. Though, to be fair, a few people do seem to have known about the awesomeness of those small red peppers before Edmund McElhaney, quote-unquote, discovered them. There was a local vet of the War of 1812 who apparently threw amazing dinner parties and had a Tabasco-flavored sauce on his table. And there were some former slaves who gave Edmund advice on how you turn the peppers, which are actually incredibly spicy, into an edible sauce. Very quickly, Edmund knew he was onto something big. He patented the sauce, he bottled it in empty cologne bottles, and he marketed it as Tabasco sauce. It was a hit almost from the beginning. A few years after the sauce was created, it was showing up all along the Gulf Coast and then in bigger northern cities like New York. Edmund's son became a rough rider and a friend of President Teddy Roosevelt. And when the government told the family, sure, you can patent the name Tabasco, which is really just the name of a plant, a lot of competitors thought they smelled favoritism. Over the past 150 years, the McElhaney family has not loosened their connection to Tabasco sauce. Everyone who has ever run the company is a family member. They have never sold the business, even though there have reportedly been some very lucrative buyout offers. And they still run it from Avery Island, Louisiana, where peppers, salt, and vinegar sit aging in huge wooden barrels, waiting to be put in tiny bottles that look a lot like they have for more than a century. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Unlike a lot of people who graduate from college, Megan Tan knew exactly what she wanted to do. She wanted to work in radio. But she was young. She didn't have a lot of experience. Actually, she didn't have any experience. So she created a demo radio show to convince her potential employers that, yeah, she was a go-getter. She could edit sound. She could be creative. And it worked. So I ended up getting this job. And that was the dream. Like, that was the dream to me right out of college. Except that there was this unexpected complication with that radio show that she had cooked up for potential employers. It turned from an application strategy into a podcast, which she worked on in her closet, 
literally. She was in the closet working on it, and she released it under the title Millennial. So I would go to work, and I would, I would commute two hours a day and then work eight hours a day. And then I come back home, and I continue to make this podcast. Whoa. Yeah, so it was like having two jobs. Right. And I, the reason why I just couldn't, I just couldn't stop making Millennial. It didn't take long for Millennial, which is just the story of Megan Tan trying to figure out the post-college world, to catch on. And once hundreds of thousands of people started to listen, the old job started to seem less awesome. Especially as a 20-something with no experience under your belt. Your job is to be quiet and to listen and to work and to prove yourself that you even belong there and you are a right choice. Right. And I knew that there. And so when I was in my closet, I was just like, there's just so much freedom. You know, it's weird. Just like it's small. Yeah, exactly. It's so small and lonely and like dark. But like there's so much freedom and so much joy in making millennial and in and actually pushing myself to become that radio producer that I wanted to be. In the couple of years since it launched, Millennial became such a big hit that Tan was able to quit her dream job to focus on it. But it grew so big, it started taking over her life, which is why on her most recent birthday, she took a breath and she rethought how to balance following her dreams with some of the less glamorous side effects of success. Like sciatic nerve damage because you sit too long in a chair working. Do right? you really have sciatic nerve damage? I do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, so there is there is that part. There is the part of we we don't stop working. Mm-hmm. Like I have a partner who also has his own business, and when you're a business owner, you just don't stop working. And so, millennial, even though it is a podcast and a show, because it's independent, it is a a business on Mm -hmm. its own. And so you are dealing with the creative part, which is the product part, but then you're also making sure that you have multiple streams of revenue coming in so that you can live. Right. Right. And so balancing those two. And there is a lot of late nights, you know, I mean, I have alarms set for three o'clock in the morning because I have a deadline to meet. Well, okay. So, how many hours a day would you say you work on average, and how many uh, how many hours a day, and then how many days a week? So, I would say before my birthday because <laughs> I had to. Well, so but, that was the reset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really was. It really was. I mean, I I didn't have a day off. Like I didn't take days off. Hmm. I would work every day. Yeah. Okay. Um, no weekends. I mean, weekends came, but you work. Yeah. 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 Or, or it would be like one day every two weeks. Hmm. I would not work. Right. And then you realize that's detrimental to your life, like long term. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but I can tell you it takes 60 to 100 hours to make an episode of millennial, hmm. just one person. And that's not even even counting gathering tape. And I know this because I time myself when I do it. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, there are sometimes, there are days when you put in like 15 hours. I wonder, you know, the podcast is called Millennial. And I wonder if you think that in some ways it captures in any kind of a special way 
a millennial struggle with work as opposed to, you know, baby boomers were 20 once. You know, I mean, Gen Xers were 20 once. Um, is something special going on here, going on now with the economy, with, with millennials? Oh, for sure. I think when I... When I decided to leave my full-time job in radio, uh, <laughs> we had this moment when I was just like, this is such a millennial thing to do. Because here you are, just like, you you have this, you have this, like, cushion job, uh, and you're like, but I want to work for myself. Like, that sounds like a millennial thing to do. And I think a lot of it is because... When I mean, when I was walking out of college, all we were hearing about were people getting laid off. Mm-hmm. And even when I was in high school and college, like my father got laid off and he had been working with a company for 35 years. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like a, a lot of people who are my age, who I talk to, or at least my friends anyways, uh, two things are rooted in them, which is one, you know, when you're working for someone else, there's no security in that necessarily, right? It's kind of a rethinking of, I mean, it used to be that if you were working for somebody else, very often the security was that they were going to keep you on until you retired. Exactly. And and we've seen that that's not the case, Mm -hmm. right? People who invest their lives into a job, they may cut the cord like right before you're your retirement really can kick in. And like, that's really sad. Uh, So I think there's a lot of distrust in that system. And I also think that there's a ceiling to when you do have one of those jobs, right, where there there are people who are telling you there are things you cannot do. And I feel like a lot of people who I I know and, and work with, they like the ability to be able to not have a ceiling. And I can speak for myself. Like, I like not having a ceiling. Do you feel, or do people you talk to, do they feel scared not having a safety net? Because there's also something to, you know, uh, not having health care because you're not part of a big organization. Or, you know, I mean, I don't know if you ever think about this, and this might be my own kind of just paranoia kicking in, but do you ever think like, well, I mean, this this podcast is popular now, but, you know, what if it isn't? And what do I do then? And sort of where do I go? And what happens? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course. Of, I mean, millennial could phase out tomorrow. I mean, people could phase out a podcast tomorrow and sponsors wouldn't want to support it. But, like, you could say that about everything. That's true. You, right? Yeah. I mean, like, everybody's having the same conversations about what happens if the thing that has been our foundation all of a sudden changes. Well, that's just life, you know, and you bounce back from that. So at this moment, for me anyway, uh, when I decided to quit my job and do this full time, it was really because I thought to myself, if I don't do this, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. Yeah. So, okay. So I want to ask you, if you were talking to somebody, a young person, who said, um, either I want to start my own podcast or I just want to start my own thing. I mean, so it, it could be some other kind of business or some other kind of creative endeavor. What would you tell them? What would you advise them, knowing what you know, knowing that you had that dream too and, and now like kind of living the reality of it? Sure. 
I would say you have to get a dream bully. That's what we call them. People who like... A dream bully. Yeah, yeah. Someone who's really close to you and you tell them what your dream is, the dream that you never tell anyone about, and you set a deadline for whatever action you're going to take in order to see that dream through. When I first released the first episode of Millennial, I mean, I totally changed as a person just having just in confidence hmm. yeah and you would be surprised when you make that switch so I would tell people get a dream bully yeah and and have deadlines do you uh worry that you know if success is a product of you know talent and hard work but also timing that even though a lot of people may want something there's a certain amount of luck that factors in and not everybody gets lucky with their timing and whatever. Do you worry that, you know, you're telling people to do things that maybe that it's a dream they can't realize? I do think that there is luck involved. There's always luck involved yeah. in anything. Getting a car, getting a boyfriend, what? You got to be lucky. <laughs> you know? uh, but I do think if you do enough work to put yourself in places and positions where luck will come, then that's actually what you're fighting to do, right? It's not that you're waiting for something to happen. It's that you're working every single day and you don't give up. And because you don't give up, then there's a percentage where luck will happen as you're working. Like I said, I could have easily stopped making millennial right when I got my full-time job. Right, right, because that was the goal of it anyway, exactly. to get that job. Exactly, and I could have stopped there, and and you and I would not be having this conversation. And it's not because all of a sudden I got lucky. It was because I continued to work seven months after the fact and developed sciatic nerve damage. <laughs> That may be a byproduct of achieving your dream. Exactly. And Good to know. and also like didn't have a lot of friends, you know, when people when people really want to know what it's like. I mean, creating a show is a lot like writing. I mean, a podcast. Yeah. It's really lonely and you're literally in a closet by yourself. <laughs> you know? So like you gotta love it. You gotta wanna work for it to be Something that, like, fulfills your soul in a way that nothing else will. Megan Tan is the host of the podcast Millennial. Great to have you in. Thank you so much for having me. We've got a new serving of Innovation Hub Conversations every week on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. But if you'd rather listen to the show right off our website, you can do that too. We're at innovationhub.org. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. In 2004, there was a big chess tournament in Reykjavik, and the best player in the world, Garry Kasparov, was slated to play a 13-year-old. Except that Kasparov didn't show up to the match. The kid he was supposed to play, Magnus Carlsen, waited, he got something to drink, other people's matches were starting all around him, and then finally Kasparov showed up. When he did, he was 100% laser-focused. He put his head in his hands, he looked really intently at the board, and Carlsen focused too, mostly. He also wandered around the room sometimes while he was waiting for Kasparov to make his next move. He may not have known it when he was getting up, 
But what Carlson was doing was supercharging his brain. And by the way, he played Kasparov to a draw. Barbara Oakley talks about the advantages of losing concentration and a whole bunch of other strategies to retrain your brain in A Mind for Numbers, How to Excel at Math and Science. She's a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Michigan, and she also happens to teach one of the most popular online courses in the world on learning how to learn. Barbara, it's great to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Kara. So you are an engineer now, as I just said, um, but as a kid, you didn't like math. Why didn't you like it? I loathed it. It it was, I'm embarrassed to say this now, it's so ironic, but I basically flunked my way through elementary, middle, and high school math and science. I mean, I was one of those kids who just doesn't get math, and I, right. I just knew that that wasn't something I could do in my career, and uh, that was totally wrong, as I eventually found out. <laughs> uh, so now I'm a professor of engineering. <laughs> well, so interestingly, unlike many of the people who, who say to themselves, yeah, I'm just not a math person, that's not my thing, that clearly somewhere uh, turned around for you. Uh, so when did, when did that change? Well, I, I, I thought, since I can't do math and science, I would love to learn another language. And I grew up in a resolutely monolingual household. You can guess what language I spoke. But <laughs> I, I enlisted in the Army because that was a way I could learn language and actually get paid for it. And I did learn a language. I picked Russian sort of on a whim. And then I found out that here I was, 26 years old, about to get out of the military, and guess what? (laughs) There's not much demand for people whose sole career expertise is the ability to speak Russian. So (laughs) that's when I figured, you know, maybe it would be a good idea to see if I can open my mind, since I like to experience new things, and see if I can learn math and science. And it wasn't easy. What made you motivated enough? I mean, because there's lots of other things you could have said, well, I'm going to, you know, uh, try to be a copy editor at a newspaper. Like, there's lots of other things you could do without ever sort of opening the math and science textbooks. What made you think, no, I'm like, I'm really going to try to do this, even though my track record doesn't look good at all? I think it was the fact that when I was in the military, I worked with all these West Point engineers. And what I saw was these individuals had these problem-solving skills that were pretty cool. And at first I thought, oh, it's just because they're super smart naturally, and I'm not just not that way. But then I began to realize, wait a minute, no, it's their training. And that training is actually something that anybody can get. And I think the real key for my long-term success was I just sucked it all up and went back to the bottom. I went back to remedial high school algebra and started there and slowly worked my way back up. I didn't try to jump too far ahead. And that was a big, uh, big part of the success, I think. What did you do uh, differently that second time in terms of like that second time here you are mid 20s post learning Russian trying to learn math again what did you do differently that second time that, than what you had done in elementary school that really worked that made things stick in your mind that made things make sense with each other 
It was the fact that I had learned another language, oddly enough. I learned how to practice and repeat and get some kind of procedural fluency. You know, you practice enough with verb conjugations and they make sense and they come naturally. And so when I started applying those same ways of learning with language to learning math and science, it actually worked great. I just, I would pick a problem and then I'd see if I could work it cold and I often couldn't. And so I'd try again and I'd get so I could look at a problem and solve it almost like playing a song in my mind. And that, as it turns out, is a very good way neuroscientifically to gain expertise in virtually any subject. So do you subscribe to the idea that I, that I think a lot of people have, which is that there's kind of a left brain, right brain divide, and you've got left brain people and right brain people, and some people are just better suited to learning languages and reading literature, and some people are really just better suited to, you know, being in a chemistry lab. I don't subscribe to that at all. I do think that there are some things that we naturally can feel like we're better at and and that we are better at. But because we're better at it, we practice at it more, and then we get better at it. And so we kind of fall into this pathway of, I'm only good at this particular topic as opposed to another one. And the reality is, though, that my personal belief is if you aren't so easy with learning in math and science and you kind of push yourself and you start learning those, you're actually using sort of different neural circuitry than the typical person who's super good at it. And because you're using different neural circuitry, you can actually learn it more deeply and more creatively. So I I think of it sometimes like this. Sometimes we think, oh, there's these superstar race car brains. They learn so quickly. I'm just a hiker. I mean, I can get there, but I'm so slow. But the hiker has a completely different experience. They can reach out. They can touch the leaves. They can see the little rabbit paths. They can smell the pine in the air. And in many ways, it's far richer and deeper. Yeah, and you might be able to see problems or issues that the other person just sped right by because they understood it too well. Exactly right. In fact, Mm. Nobel Prize winner Santiago Ramoni Cajal used to say one of the biggest problems with the many geniuses that he worked with, geniuses who, unlike him, did not win the Nobel Prize, was that they would (laughs) jump to conclusions and then they couldn't switch their mind. They weren't used to being wrong, and so they were inflexible. So slower but more careful learning can often get you places where even the geniuses can't go. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Barbara Oakley, author of A Mind for Numbers. She's also a professor of engineering at Oakland University. Um, You write about the difference between focusing intently, which is how most of us think about learning. Like you've got that math textbook, you open it up, and you sit down and you really think about a problem and you either do well with it or you don't. Um, but but there's there's sort of there's a difference between that and not focusing intently. And actually, I didn't realize this, but both of them are very important. That's a great point. When you focus intently, it's sort of like having an excavator that that digs in and gets everything put into that that big front loader part. 
But when you take a little time afterwards and just relax and not think about anything in particular or change your focus of attention, that allows that excavator to turn around, sort of mentally speaking, in your brain and consolidate to kind of restructure and organize the material in your brain. And you're, com- you're not aware of this at all, but it's a very important step in the learning process. So it's kind of like we often think, oh, I'm only learning when I'm focusing. But when you take those little breaks, that's when the learning continues. It's sort of like a uh, you put a roast in the oven, you take it out, it continues to cook some. Well, and, uh, you know, this is not uh, something that's new to smart people. Um, Thomas Edison took naps. Carl Sandburg took walks. So people seem to have known for a while, uh, people who had these kind of effective strategies for moving themselves forward in their professions, that they needed kind of time off that wasn't 100% time off. Like their brain was still doing some marinating somehow. That's right. In fact... What Thomas Edison used to do was he would sometimes sit in a chair with ball bearings in his hand, and he'd relax, relax away, just kind of vaguely cogitating on a problem, a technological problem that he had, and he'd relax and relax, and just as he'd relax so much, at least according to legend, that he'd fall asleep, the ball bearings would fall from his hands, the clatter would wake him up, and he'd take those ideas from that relaxed thinking back into the focus mode where he could refine and analyze them. And that was the idea. He was trying to, it was like a little alarm clock he had going on. Exactly right. In fact, Salvador (laughs) Dali used to do the same thing. He used keys in his hand to think about his art. Are there good kinds of procrastination and bad? Because, you know, you talked about Edison uh, resting, uh, you know, Carl Sandburg took walks. Those are all things where you're not, really focusing on something else. I mean, they weren't watching television. They weren't playing video games. But maybe those are also good things. I wonder, are there differences between different kinds of things you can do if you want to take a couple of hours off? If you're trying to let let ideas marinate as you're starting to learn something new or you're trying to understand a difficult concept. So creativity expert Howard Gruber has alluded to the idea that Creativity happens in three common circumstances, sort of the bed, the bath, and when you're on the bus, right? So these <laughs> are often uh, circumstances where you're, you're just kind of chilling out. You're not thinking about anything in particular. And I think that's the important time when you can do this consolidation. And so you're, you've front-loaded, preloaded these ideas in your brain, and then you can kind of work in the background. But I have to bring up, uh, I think, something that's a uh, very interesting point. And that is, I once had a student come up to me, and he had flunked the test. He'd done terribly, and he holds it up in front of me, and he's got all these red marks, and he says, I just don't understand how I could have flunked this test. I understood it when you said it in class. And the problem is we've gotten so overboard on the idea that that the only important part of learning is understanding that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. We haven't emphasized that 
along with that understanding, it's really important to practice with those ideas, to repeat those ideas mm. so that they become a part of us. And that's an important part of the learning process mm. as well. Well, in some ways, I, I feel like that speaks to the issue of, um, you know, rote and repetition, which in some ways, at least in America, we've kind of pushed away from as sort of an old school way of doing things. Um, but it sounds like there's a place for rote and repetition, even in deeply understanding things. Absolutely. In fact, Anders Ericsson, who is sort of the world-renowned expert on being an expert, talks about the vital importance of mental representations. That is, these sort of neural patterns that all experts develop. And what you can do is, once you've got these patterns down, you can quickly draw them to mind from one from the far reaches of your brain, another from another far reach, put them together and be creative with them. But if you're thinking, well, you know, you can always look it up. Google's always there. These ideas are not going to be in the far reaches of your brain in order to make those connections. So you just can't be as creative. It's interesting. Also, back to what you said before about um, thinking of things in the bath, in the bed and on the bus it happened. I actually have a piece of paper next to my bed because it is so annoying. And this happens to me all the time. I will like get into bed and there's like, you know, five minutes of silence and I'll realize, oh my gosh, these are three things I really have to get on. Like I really have to do these things. And for some reason I was awake all day and it really never occurred to me that I really needed to do those things. And so I have to keep a piece of paper there or else I'll have to go into the other room and get the paper. But just somehow just that five minutes of silence allows you to think things that you that you should have been thinking there during the day, but you just for some reason weren't. That's That happens to me as well. You, you know, one thing <laughs> that really makes me laugh is I'll be sitting there and I'll be working so hard that I I forget to go to the bathroom. And then all of a sudden I have to go to the bathroom. So I run over to go to the bathroom and I'm like, I'm, I'm like, oh, I, I really don't want to stop what I'm doing. But that one break, actually, I'm like, wait a minute, I should be doing this. It, it gives me a little bit of pause. It, it, it turns into something that's valuable in ways I never anticipated. You know, we talked at the beginning about um, how you originally went through school and thought, I'm just not a math person. This is totally not for me. Uh, but that, that obviously changed, and, and you're a professor of engineering now. Um, so there's a lot of people in that camp who would say, I'm not a math person. I'm not a science person. Things totally fell apart when I was taking those courses. If people better understood the principles of math and science, if like many more Americans could sort of get over that hump and really start to learn some of that stuff, how do you think it would change our society? I think that we would be, that it would be a, a boon for society that it would be some that we'd be much less likely to fall into sort of passionate uh, appeals to emotion that actually don't make rational sense when you really look at them and that's that would be a, a great boon for society just to have and even we found through studies that the simple ability to know enough math to understand mortgage payments and the idea behind them 
mm-hmm. means that you are far less likely to default on your mortgage. So we often think, oh, I can get by just fine without any math skills. But that's really not true. Uh, It it has all sorts of little subtle influences on the way you think. Sometimes people will say, well, what's the purpose of learning math and so forth? Uh, I'll never use it. And I remember I said that to my eighth grade dean of students when I got in trouble for reading in math class. But... (laughs) But it's sort of like um, saying, why do I ever work out on that Nautilus set at the gym? I will never walk out in the middle of the street and see a Nautilus set and have to lift weights like that. But what that Nautilus set, that particular exercise mechanism is doing is is building certain muscles. And math, in, in a very real sense, builds some intellectual muscles that can allow you to grapple with things that may not look directly relevant to math, Mm -hmm. but they are. Barbara Oakley is a professor of engineering at Oakland University. She's also the author of A Mind for Numbers, How to Excel at Math and Science. Barbara, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. On our Facebook page, by the way, we've got a link to Barbara Oakley's free online course on learning how to learn. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help this week from Jonathan Gang. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. PRI. Public Radio International.